Good evening. <laughs> Will you just join me in prayer before we begin, please? Dear Lord, we do thank you that you are a unified God. We thank you that your kingdom is unified. We thank you that you do the work that binds us together in unity to serve you and to reflect your oneness. We thank you that you, that we one day will be perfectly united with you in heaven. Please help us to seek to maintain the unity that you have created for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, <clears throat> when uh, the elders asked me to present on this subject of unity, I was glad to do so. It's something that had been sort of close to my heart for a long time, and um, yeah, I really wanted to, to explore that subject biblically. So, but, you know, there's some practical things associated with preparing a, a paper and a, and a teaching. So I asked, how long do I have to prepare this, and what date will I be speaking on? And uh, Brad's, you know, thinking through this, said, April the 11th. I was like, oh, sure, sounds like a great date. That gives me plenty of time to prepare. And then I realized it was the same Sunday that Albert Moller was in town. So now you get to hear the following act of Al the Albert Moller show. So please be praying for me as I go through this. <clears throat> so... As I said before, tonight we're going to talk, I'm going to try and talk to you. I'm not going to try and talk to you. I am going to talk to you about the subject of unity. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. In an age of stark partisanship that strains the bonds of peace, we watch the world embroil itself in disputes about political and social differences. But aghast, we see similar lines being drawn and cracks appearing within the church around political, social, and spiritual issues. Sometimes we doubt that unity is achievable. But let me encourage you, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ gives Christians a concrete basis and a clear means for true unity. We should all desperately seek to maintain this unity that has been graciously given to us by God to preserve. Scripture says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 verse 3 that we should be united in the same mind and the same judgment, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, and to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, 1 Peter 3 verse 8. In obedience to this, we as elders seek to encourage the members of UBC to strive together to maintain the unity that is found in the gospel. We feel burdened with grief that many of us have fallen foul of the partisanship and disunity that is all too prevalent in the worldly culture wars of today. We would like to share a reminder of the biblical call to be set apart from the world, to be distinctive in our behavior and representative of our God according to the commands of his word in this area. So 
for you note takers, I'm going to have five subheadings. I know five sounds like a lot, but I'm going to try and spend about five minutes on each. Um, so first of all, I'd like to offer you a biblical definition of unity. Second, we're going to look at the curse of division. Thirdly, we will briefly discuss false unity. Fourthly, we will look at partisanship as a major cause of disunity. And finally, we will look at some practical biblical guidance on how to encourage one another in the pursuit of unity. So here it is. My not-so-succinct definition of unity Unity is covenantal oneness given to us by God to maintain so that we as the body of Christ can reflect the loving harmony of the Trinity to a fractured world. Okay, you got it? Okay, you got that down? All right, let me, let me go through that. Let's break it down a little bit. Unity is covenantal oneness given to us by God to maintain so that we as the body of Christ can reflect the loving harmony of the Trinity to a fractured world. The word of God is clear throughout its pages that unity amongst his people is not only possible and worth maintaining, but a reflection of the very Godhead itself. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 informs us that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hebrew here is echad, for the word one, remember that. There is one God, but he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who dwell together in perfect unity. We see a good example of this in Luke chapter 3, 21 to 22, where in a unifying event, Jesus the Son is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father declares his sonship. We also hear Jesus' expression of this oneness in John 10, verse 30, declaring that he and the Father are one. The Trinity is unified in mind, in thought, and in purpose. It is this attribute that God wants his people to reflect to a perverse and divided world. He does not expect us to create this unity by ourselves, however, He has revealed a setting in which we can be a reflection of his unified nature. He has chosen covenant community as the vessel for this example. As we will see, a covenant community is a group of people that are brought together through the sovereign bestowment on them of a covenant with God. He did this first by creating for himself a united people, the Israelites, by way of the Old Testament covenants. We can see the unifying nature of these covenants with God by the language used throughout the Old Testament. Repeated are the descriptions of Israel as my people, one nation, and in particular, one people. In Hebrew, that's am echad. When the Lord entered into covenant union with the people of Israel, they immediately entered into union with one another. Their unity with God united them to each other. These people were able were to these people were to maintain the unity that comes from being joined to one another in covenant with God. 
The Abrahamic covenant joined people together through lineage and circumcision. The Mosaic covenant through the communal following of the law. Traditions and community formed around these covenants bonded the Jewish people together in a way that's lasted throughout history. You can Google it right now. I mean, not right now, but you can later. Um, and find out that to this day, the phrase amachad is used to describe congregations of Orthodox Jews around the world. Like we say, University Baptist Church, they're like amachad tabernacle or something like that. Um, <clears throat> this fierce sense of ethnic and religious unity has preserved the Jewish way of life throughout the centuries. They call out to one another, Achdut Yisrael, which means united Israel. They do this to encourage each other to maintain the sense of community and unity amongst themselves. And although their adherence to the Mosaic Covenant is now misplaced, read Galatians 2 and 3 here, the longevity of the Jewish community illustrates well that unity that comes through covenant with the Almighty is a blessing that promotes togetherness, distinctiveness, and community to a fractured world. Of course, this God-ordained pattern is continued in the New Testament and established anew by the apostles and Jesus himself. The new covenant community is the body of Christ, united. Jesus prays in John 17, 22 to 23, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, notice how in this passage, the oneness of God's people is compared to the oneness of the Godhead. Observe how this oneness is a unification that grows in maturity into perfect unity. Finally, we see that the purpose of this unity is to serve as a witness to the word, world of God's love. It is by our love for one another that the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. John 13, 35. Paul was inspired to make a direct connection to the one people motif when he introduced the one body example to the first Christian churches. He would have grown up in Amachad. This communion, however, is superior to the old one in that its proximity and intimacy with Christ is closer, as we learned this morning. Remember, he is the vine and we are the branches. We have that closer relationship of Christ through this covenant. To the Roman church, he says that we, though many, are one body in Christ. Romans 12.5. To the Corinthian church, Paul states, we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. It's 1 Corinthians 12.13. To the Ephesians, he declares that there is one body and one spirit, Ephesians 4, verse 4. And finally, to the Colossians, he says that we are called in one body, Colossians 3, verse 15. The consistent element of the unity described in both Testaments is this, a covenant of election by and with God. 
In our current context as members of UBC, we are joined as one body around the new covenant of the gospel. It is unity in this covenant that sets us apart from the world. If you read 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18, it describes dwelling with God in this way is indeed what makes us separate and holy. The unity found in the gospel is also distinct in purpose. Primarily, the church's unity reflects and promotes the love of God to a fractious world. It shouts, we are united by God in Christ around the truth of the gospel. It promotes togetherness. It is internal in nature because it's based in an unconditional covenant that the Lord has promised he will consummate in heaven. It points outwardly to others and ultimately to God. This is in direct opposition to unity that is centered around temporal issues. Unity around these lesser issues is no different than the unity the world endorses. We can gather around nationality, our ethnicity, our political views, our denomination, our sports teams, our views on cultural issues, political issues such as government overreach, medical research, its effect on our bodies and our children's bodies, etc., etc., etc. That list is long. But these things do not take precedence over that which unites us to our God and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are piffling issues in comparison with the word and purpose of the Lord Almighty. They should not threaten that which joins us together with Christ, namely living in covenant with God through the work of Christ on the cross, through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Be encouraged. The Lord will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This then is a brief biblical theology of unity. But what does scripture have to say about its counterpart, Division. Earlier I quoted Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Imagine the opposite. Behold, how bad and ugly it is when brothers tear each other apart in division. In contrast to the blessing of unity is the curse of division. Division is a curse a resulting consequence of the fall and a part of the sin nature of humanity. Consistently, when people are united in rebellion against God, division is the judgment that follows. When the people of earth gathered against him in purpose and tongue, God cursed the citizens of Babel with confusion and scattering. When Solomon strayed from the covenant that required him to seek only one God and instead allowed for idol worship, The punishment was a divided kingdom. Persistent disobedience by God's people in the Old Testament resulted in the judgment of being scattered into exile. And the fruit of poor shepherding by the leaders of Israel was the scattering of the sheep. Find that in Ezekiel. Scripture shows that it is because of disobedience that people are divided. Division in the New Testament church is framed as a contradiction to the unity found in the gospel. Though occasionally necessary in a fallen world, you see this in 1 Corinthians 11, 18, and 19, 
Division is always as a result of sin and harms the body of Christ. Jesus notes that a divided kingdom against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Matthew 12:25. Here he is correcting the Pharisees' inference that he is leading a divided kingdom. The kingdom of God is not a divided kingdom but as a kingdom united in purpose. The apostles were also careful to rebuke the spirit of division in the church. Paul commands that there be no divisions among you to the members of the Corinthian church and teaches Titus to instruct believers to avoid foolish controversies and having nothing more to do with he who persists in stirring up division. Overseers are disqualified if they become quarrelsome, and false teachers are marked by stirring up discontentment in others. Jude, you can see that in Jude. Most damning is the description of division as a work of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19-21, and 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3. We ask you, are you marked by causing division? Do you avoid foolish controversies or stir them up? Do you encourage those who are clearly exacerbating division? Do you look for a quarrel or embolden others in their discontentment? If so, please be diligent to cut off this work of the flesh. Repent and be the one that fosters unity through the love of your brethren. Make sure your discussions are aimed towards discipleship and bearing fruit in the lives of fellow believers, not bringing death to your relationships. Why is it important that we do this? Division is particularly dangerous in the body of Christ because of its effect on the overarching benefit of unity, namely the representation of God's love to the world. It is a quick way to damage the witness of the church and speak poorly of our God. Division, infighting, and partisanship is a common observation and accusation against the church from a watching world. So in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, we see it describes how we are equipped to attain the unity of the faith, how we grow into Christ, how we are joined and built together as a body. Actively speaking the truth in love is a critical component of how this is accomplished. A threat to this unity, growth, and joining together is a temptation toward false unity. False unity is being passive and shying away from speaking the truth in love, allowing issues to be swept under the carpet not reproving, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting one another. False unity can cause us to gloss over or shy away from discussing important issues or becoming secretly entrenched in our own opinions whilst pretending that everything's okay. It is true that love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8, and that we should bear with one another and not please ourselves, Romans 15 verse 1. That if one has a complaint against another, we should forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us. Colossians 3.13. And we can look to Romans 14 for instructions on passing judgment. 
is also true that there are certain hills to die on from a doctrinal perspective. And we, as we talked this morning, we sometimes use theological triage to categorize issues into the important and the not so important. But even then, we should not use this as an excuse not to press in and work through even third tier issues. False unity can often result in festering resentment, resentment and if, if an issue is left unaddressed. Slowed spiritual growth can happen if disagreement is not worked through in a biblical manner. Corrosive sin may go unchecked, or incorrect doctrine can work its leaven unabated. The motivation for false unity is sometimes a lack of boldness or a fear of man. But sometimes it can simply be that we are stubbornly entrenched in a position from which we are unwilling to be persuaded. If you struggle with this and despair that working toward unity like this is possible, I encourage you, get off social media, get out of the echo chambers, and get back to true fellowship. True fellowship that requires face-to-face engagement around Scripture, with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This has not been that easy in this current season, but it is possible nonetheless. We may find that engaging like this may be difficult, sometimes uncomfortable, but we should have the boldness to speak truthfully into each other's lives, humble enough to take correction from one another. We should be eager to learn from each other's exposition of the truth and meekly willing to lay ourselves and our positions aside in light of wise biblical counsel. The question remains, how can we go about maintaining unity in a season of bitter partisanship? And how can we as a church be distinctive in this area so that we can faithfully represent the love of God? Thankfully, the Bible has a passage that speaks directly to this issue. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 17, uh, and uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 23. I'll be referencing this through the next little section here. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 17, and 3, 1 to 23. Here Paul specifically addresses partisanship and division within the church. He gives the Corinthians the blueprint for its remedy so that they can reverse course and begin to counteract its potential to divide divide the church. The church at Corinth was a diverse group with a congregation made up of multiple ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. It was normal for both the Gentile and Jewish contingencies in the church to follow various prominent men and for communities to split into groups and to form cliques around their personalities, ideas, doctrines, and philosophies. For centuries, the Jews followed various rabbis like Hillel, Gamaliel, and Shammai, and sects like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. The Gentiles followed various philosophers and orators such as Epimenides and Aratus. Paul, by the way, quotes from those guys in his sermon on Mars Hill. Perhaps now the church felt like it was legitimate 
to follow Christian men in the same way, shouting their support for Paul, I follow Paul, Apollos, I follow Apollos, Peter, I follow Peter, or even Christ itself, as if he was somehow in opposition to the others. But Paul disagrees. He discerns a spirit of division in their partisanship. He points out that quarreling is wrong and that the object of their loyalty is misplaced. He addresses this problem head on. He urges them to agree that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united. In fact, united in the same mind and the same judgment because Christ is not divided. But what does this mean and how does it show us how partisanship can be avoided? Perhaps an expanded translation of the Greek would be, you will be made complete by aligning your mode of thinking and your method of discerning the truth together. Paul's appeal is for them to break from this divisive mindset, to reject partisanship, stop quarreling, and come together around the table in agreement. They were not to be more loyal to the personality cults of certain men, but to realize that they were all building from one foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 3.16, Paul anticipates the objection that this is difficult or even impossible. His rhetorical question Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you is meant to illustrate the foolishness of the belief that the loyalties of God's people can be divergent. This belief is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, is clear that partisanship shows a general misunderstanding of how the church is built together. Paul, Apollos, and Peter are all just servants that build upon the foundation of Christ. They are all fellow workers in the building of God's church. The church is God's temple, the body of Christ in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. He will guide his people into all truth, John 16, 13. Paul ends the discussion, verses 19 and 20 to 23 of chapter 3, with a clear comparison The wisdom of the world is folly. The thoughts of the wise are futile. Let no one boast in men, but we are Christ's. Come to our last section. We see, we've heard that Paul's main point in 1 Corinthians is to steer the church away from the veneration of men and their opinions over the word of God. Additionally, in Romans 14, we've seen, we can see that the encouragement to, to, we see an encouragement to care for the weak in faith by not quarreling over opinions. Additionally, imperatives from other parts of the New Testament give us guidance on how to maintain unity on a daily basis and in a very practical way. Let's look at some of them here. 2 Timothy 4.2 encourages us to strive toward meaningful discussions with one another, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Do we do this, or do we assume that this command does not apply to us, and instead avoid discussions, gossip behind people's back, and become impatient with others, clinging to our own opinions? 
Ephesians 4, verses 2 to 3, asks us to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do we bear with others and maintain unity, or seek to divide into partisan groups, destroying the bond of peace? 1 Peter 3, verse 8, commands us to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do we unify around the word, subjecting our opinion under it with humility? Are we willing to be changed by one another because of our love and respect for each other? Or do we stubbornly cling to our opinions with a self-important, self-promoting mindset? Romans 12, in various parts, tells us to love one another with brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor, to live in harmony with one another, to not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never to be wise in our own sight, and if possible, so far as it depends on us, to live peaceably with all. Do we seek these things and are, are we typified by them? Or does division follow us around because of our haughty attitude? If someone goes so far as to sin against you in a manner that needs addressing, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If, you listen, if he listens to you, you have gained a brother, says Matthew 18, verse 15. If someone truly sins against us, it does happen. Surprisingly, not surprisingly. Do we go to them in person, in love, and seek peace, forgiveness, and reconciliation? Or do we complain about them to others first and allow distance and animosity to grow in between us? Or worse, do we seek to part from them prematurely, prematurely without seeking understanding and unity first? So remember, as a guiding principle for all of these applications, look at Colossians 3.14. It says, Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So my conclusion tonight is this. Do not give in to the spirit of this age or conform to the pattern of this world. Although many of us have humbly sought to maintain the unity of the brethren, too many have been drawn into partisanship and given into the temptation to seek division. Please, I ask you, actively contribute to the good witness of the body of Christ through lovingly finding agreement in the gospel truth. Trust that the Lord will follow through on his covenantal promise to bring us complete to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Through perseverance in these things, let the world see our love for one another, and through that example, see the love of God. Let's pray. Dear God, we do thank you that we are in covenant community with you and with one another. Please give us the determination and the strength to seek unity with one another so we can grow and build one another up towards spiritual maturity and be representatives to you in the way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ so the world can see your love. In Jesus' name, amen.